So you're saying to yourself, yo, sir, dude, I wanted to see Kevin Smith in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but the motherfucker sold out. Well, after I shed a tear for you, I highly recommend bookmarking csmod.com. That's the place on the worldwide interwebs to see all upcoming Smodco shows, updated with linky links to Tiki Tickets. Say it with me, baby. csmod.com. Nice. Ooh, I just got a little hard there. So, you're saying, yo, sir, dude, I love sir, and I want to show the world. Wear your sir love with our official t-shirts, biatch. Fishies have no eyes. Let us fuck. Jay and Silent Bob get old. The Garmy. There's also posters, action figures. There's so many to choose from. Grab your smirch at smodcast.com. Scroll down and click on Smerchandise. This is Kelly Carlin, and uh, welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Your friends make me smile, George. 
Lord, say fuck again. I can only hope those words live on through my radio like a great old song. Since even though your consciousness may be long gone, surfing through the podcasts on my phone, I hear a voice that I don't know. I'm caught up by words that take me right back home Different spirit, new ideals But kid, you're still keeping it real It's not the same, it's different, awesome And I'm overjoyed that somebody Well, if you insist, fuck. I'm saying fuck today because the stream is not working, (laughs) which you obviously know because you tried to listen live and it wouldn't come up live and it's not restarting. But we are recording. So that's all that's important. Uh, That was Crystal Wolf uh, with her song Buddha on a Harley, um, which is a song about my dad and me, which when she sent it to me made me cry because, you know. All I want to do is keep the flame alive. And uh, if I'm doing that for her, then that makes it all worthwhile. So thank you, Crystal Wolf, for that beautiful song. And uh, <laughs> don't know what my dad would say about the Harley part. Just don't think he's a big fan of the hogs. I like the bikes. I'm afraid to ride them. My husband rides a BMW, but uh, we know I'm a big fan of the Buddha. So, And because I'm such a big fan of the Buddha, I also know that if I see him in the road, I'm supposed to kill him just like you. But that's another topic for another day. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's February 2nd. Yes, we made it. We made it through January. It's a miracle. I don't know how we did it. Really? How did we do it? Uh, it's February 2nd. It's Groundhog Day which, you know, for people on the West Coast is pretty much meaningless. But I was, uh, it's also another day, which is, um, it's an ancient Gaelic pagan festival holiday called Imbolc, I-M-B-O-L-C. And it, um, I think this is the true origin of it. And I looked it up on the Wikipedia, of course. And uh, actually, Imbolc is the day the Kaelich, which is some Gaelic word, which means hag. Thank you very much. That's the crone. That's the wise woman of the, um, of the tribe. It's when the hag gathers her firewood for the rest of the winter. And legend has it that if she intends to make the winter last a good while longer, 
she will make sure the weather on Imbolc is bright and sunny so she can gather plenty of firewood, which would mean she could see her shadow, which means there will be more winter. You getting that? So therefore, people are generally relieved on this day if it's a shitty weather day because the hag can't go out and pick up her, her wood, which is a really strange cause and effect thing. So if the weather's bad, so she determines the weather. So she's saying, okay, it's it, winter's almost over. I don't need any more firewood, so I'm going to let it snow today. I think that's the logic, which I love because it's not – the kind of cause and effect that we normally have here in our time. It's, you know, it's not present cause and effect in future. It's determined future, therefore affecting present, which is really what it's all about because uh, it's what Gene Houston calls jump time. It's like, you know, people, we need to get into jump time right now because this cause and effect stuff is not working on the planet right now. We need to access some deeper intelligence through some other kind of time space portal through the transcendent mind, if need be. I'm reading a new book lately. It's called Source by Joseph Jaworski. Amazing guy. This brilliant, like corporate leadership guy who's totally into the transcendent and access, accessing collective wisdom through the transcendence. I'm trying to get him as a guest. I'm reading his book right now. And, uh, it's one of those books where I just, I want to eat the pages. That's how much I love it. Uh, and I read his other book, Synchronicity. I think it's called The Inner Path of Leadership. And I read that like four and a half years ago when I went to leadership camp. And um, <laughs> my husband always makes fun of me when I talk about my days in leadership. I went to this really cool program. It was like a nine-month-long program, four long retreats with 22 amazing people. So whenever I talk about leadership, he always talks about it like I went to band camp or something. So when I went to leadership camp, they had us read Synchronicity by Joseph Jaworski. And the cool thing about it is this guy's like not woo woo. He's like based in like physicists and corporate thinking and leadership. And so it really like melds all these amazing worlds together. And it, it reading his new book has gotten me re-engaged and recharged into this kind of, um, direction I was going in heavily going into right when my father died. Like I was like signed up to start teaching some leadership stuff. I was, uh, integrating my acting and performing stuff and writing with leadership and was going to travel to Europe and teach these workshops and step up into this whole different way and start a leadership council for Hollywood and entertainment industry. And then my father died. And uh, the only way I can describe it is it was like uh, the world, literally the world went upside down. I picture it like one of those um, time sand things. What are those things called? Um, fuck, uh, I have menopause brain, but you know what I mean? When you turn it over and then the sand starts going through it, it's like, it's like, it's like all the sand was out, I guess. And the, it got flipped over for me because literally my world got completely displaced. And as you know, it's, well, as some of you know, it's, it's been very surreal as like, as I like to say, surreal on steroids. Uh, and my life just got changed. All the leadership stuff, all the coaching stuff, all that got put on the back burner. And now I was, um, stepping into my father's shoes to be his voice in the world and do the Mark Twain thing and all this kind of stuff happened. So now it's three and a half years later and uh, everything is coming full circle and 
doing my art and getting involved in this leadership stuff again. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I know it's the work that I'm here to do is to help people connect to their own personal higher consciousness so that we can all then collectively touch our higher consciousness, our collective wisdom, so that we can find solutions and interesting paths and innovations for the future. Because um, let me just put it this way, the Congress and the Office of President and the Democrats and the Republicans, they're not going to do it for us, people. If we got a few enlightened beings who are willing to help us fund some interesting government studies and government projects, that would be great. You'll hear more about that in my interview today with um, my guest, uh, who will blow your mind. Um, but, uh, you know, basically, it's, it's up to us citizens. And, um, you know, like I said, over the break of Christmas, you know, I'm just done. I'm done with these people's bullshit. I'm done with their solutions. It clearly doesn't work. Uh, you know, they're, they're ready to run us into the ground. They're like, you know, they're, they're like the captain of that cruise ship in, in Italy. They just want to impress the people on the shore with their big ass cruise ship and show them how close they can come to the shore. And they're going to fucking crash the thing and they're going to kill 24 people or 24 million or whatever it is. And, um, you know, I've, uh, got my life vest on. I've organized a group and we've already got our boat. We're way off the boat already and they're just still just heading for the rocks. So. Come join me in the little lifeboat. It's nice and comfy here. So we're going to play a little song. And then when we get back, um, we're going to go right into my interview with um, Howard Bloom because I even introduced him. I pre-recorded it. He couldn't be on the show today because he's part of the space steering committee with astronauts talking about putting solar panels up above the atmosphere so that we can actually have free unlimited energy for the planet. Yeah, it's like he's cool stuff. So uh, he he's busy at the space committee right now. So we talked earlier today. Um, so I'm going to play a little song and then we'll go right into um, we'll go right into Howard Stern. Uh, Howard Stern. That's funny. No, Howard Bloom. It's Howard Bloom. It's not Howard Stern. I swear I will not be doing dick jokes with Howard Bloom. Now, if I had Howard Stern on, I might be doing dick jokes. Uh, I'm going to play a little song by another new artist on my show. Her name is Emily White, and this sh- this song is called The World Will Follow.
So our stream is fixed. I had to come back and just say something about it. And I had to come back and fix something because I hit the wrong button on my play thing. That was Andy Starr. Emily White, I will play you at the end of the show. I swear I will. Andy Starr. That was Andy Starr with The World Will Follow. And now, and now, here is my interview with Howard Bloom. I'm here today with uh, Howard Bloom. If you're not familiar with Howard, he has been called, believe it or not, the Einstein, Darwin, Newton, and Freud of the 21st century. If that's not pressure, I don't know what is. Uh, he's known for authoring some amazing books, one of which is The Luth- the Lucifer Principle, A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History, Global Brain, The Evolution of Mass Mind from the Big Bang to the 21st Century, and the one that I have consumed now twice, The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. Howard has done uh, everything, amazing things, uh, had 12 different lives, I believe, and lately has been part of the Space Development Steering Committee, which just fascinates me to no end. Uh, Howard Bloom, welcome to my show today. Thanks, Kelly. It's a pleasure. How You're in New York City? I'm sitting here in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Ah, beautiful. Beautiful. And uh, so I, I thought we would t- touch on a bunch of things today, but I thought we would start and just touch a little bit on some of the uh, genius of the beast themes, uh, the radical revisioning of capitalism, because, you know, it kind of seems like a pertinent subject these days, <laughs> since we are in a clearly a radical revision of capitalism. Well, it's uh, it's extremely pertinent because we don't even know what we've got on our hands. We walk around um, blind um, to the system that we're living in, and I mean the Western system. We don't see it of all the strange things. Here's a couple of facts. If you and I had been born in um, 1850, we would have had an average life expectancy of 38.5 years. If we had been born in the Western system in... 2009, we'd have had an average life expectancy of over 78 years. That's an increase of 40 years. That's two lifetimes for the price of one. That's the Western system. That's the strange kind of stuff the Western system does. And if you and I had been the poorest paid dock workers in, or the poorest paid workers of all kinds in London in 1850, we'd have uh, gotten $4,800 a year for being Irish dock workers. If we had been the poorest paid workers in London in 2009, we'd have been paid almost, uh, well, almost $39,000 a year. That's one of us, a personal assistant, the poorest paid worker in London, earning what an entire tenement full of dock workers earned back in 1850. And the only system that has ever done this, the only system that has ever come close is the Western system. It's worked not only in the West, it's worked in South Korea, it's worked, it's now working in China, it's worked in Japan, it's worked pretty much wherever it's been tried. And capitalism is an essential part of this system because capitalism's not the whole thing, not by any stretch of the imagination. And capitalism can't operate on its own, and capitalism can be either criminal or it can be creative. But Creative capitalism, working within the bowels of a larger system that includes government and includes uh, the protest industry, um, can achieve miracles, material miracles, secular miracles. Yeah, and I was thinking about this the other day, how 
I'm, I'm just worried though that, I mean, the system, you're right. I mean, what has happened in 150 years is, uh, close to miraculous, but I worry that we have, you know, so, uh, gone so far and expanded so much that, you know, and used so many resources and gotten used to the sense of expansion so much that we've kind of let ourselves down a cul-de-sac in some ways. Well, I think the cul-de-sac is in our perceptions. In reality, we have barely touched the resources on this planet. I know that's a totally heretical thing to say. Uh, we are all supposed to piss and moan that we've run out of resources. But for every ounce of life stuff on this planet, life stuff of any kind, human, non-human, bacterial, whatever you choose, there are 220 million ounces of dead stuff waiting to be turned into part of the life process. That's an awful lot of stuff, 220 million ounces for every ounce there is of us. And, and, you know, once upon a time, there was less than a teaspoonful of life on this planet. That was uh, 3.85 billion years ago. And then life, life is strange stuff. Life is imperialistic. Life is greedy. Life is ambitious. Life likes to spread out. And life needs to spread out. Life needs to constantly invent new ways to turn old wastelands and old forms of poison into new treasures and new treats. And life has been doing that for a very long time because there have been 142 mass extinctions on the face of this planet. And life's job has been outrace the next mass extinction by inventing as new ways to exist on this planet. We call them niches, um, as you can possibly invent. Then, whammo, along comes the next grand extinction out of a hundred possibilities that you, life, have developed. Um, Eighty turn out to be wiped away, and twenty survive. The more you evolve, the more you create, the more breakthroughs and innovations you make during those periods between innovations, the greater the odds that life will survive. And life is now up to going from a teaspoonful of stuff to what you see when you're looking from a satellite um, using Google Image or when you're uh, taking a flight from L.A. to New York. And actually what you see, Kelly, is if you're taking a flight from New York to L.A. or vice versa, you see once you get past the coasts, um, you see very little life at all. You see just huge patches of brown. So life has very has barely begun its trek on just this one planet. And then think of all the resources it's failed to touch above our heads. Moons, planets, other solar systems. All that stuff is dead, dead molecules, dead atoms, waiting to be seduced, kidnapped, and recruited into the life process, waiting to be gardened, waiting to be greened, waiting for ecosystems to arrive. And, you know, we don't have an awful lot of distinctions when it comes to comparing us with, say, bacteria who are smart as can be and who have learned, worked out entire ways to live in radioactive pools that would kill us humans off. I mean, they're clever as can be. They've worked out ways to eat granite two miles beneath our feet and turn it into biomass, turn it into food, fuel, luxury, as far as they're concerned. So we're pretty dumb compared to the bacteria. But the one thing that we can do that bacteria can't is get life above the atmosphere of this planet, beyond orbit, well, into orbit, and then beyond orbit and off to moons and other planetary bodies or whatever you call heavenly bodies, big gravity blobs. Take them off to these gravity blobs and turn these gravity blobs from dead stuff to life stuff. You know, I I, I find that fascinating and 
And my, you know, we were saying about how smart bacteria were compared to us in many ways. Uh, that's kind of what I worry about is that we humans, um, are, you know, uh, not taking this seriously, this, this need to move beyond the paradigm we're in and, and, and to find new ways to be in relationship with the resources here to, uh, you know, to, to spread out the, the, uh, the, the research, like water and things like that. And, and I feel like we're so stuck in these ways of being. You know, like I look at the, I look at the presidential, the GOP presidential, uh, you know, race right now, and I look at the, the debates, and I think these people aren't talking about anything that's going to be pertinent in 50 years, or maybe even 25 years. I feel like they're all just kind of tap dancing and, and talking about a storyline that's, that's a dead storyline. And, and that concerns me that no one is really, See, having the vision and taking this by the reins and and taking this seriously. Well, a dead storyline is exactly, that's a terrific phrase. And that is what's going on because, again, we don't see our powers and we need to. If we have doubled the human lifespan in the last 150 years, what's our obligation, yours and mine, during the brief period of time we're around on this planet? It's to double it again. In fact, if it was doubled in the old days with primitive technologies, we should be able to quadruple it. To the extent that we're not doing that, Kelly, to the extent that we're not looking to the future and then trying to make fantasy into reality and the impossible into fantasy, to the extent that we're not doing any of that, we are cheating the humans, our fellow humans, on this planet Earth. Look what we've done in the last 150 years. Every system of belief that calls on our idealism claims it's going to raise the poor and the oppressed. And no system has done it like the West. There was a cloth of kings. Uh, three, well, if you and I had been normal citizens in 1850, we would have worn clothes made out of one form or another of wool. And that meant that, well, first of all, when was the last time you accidentally threw a wool sweater into the washing machine? It came out too small to fit your poodle. So how often do you think people got to launder their wool clothing? Never, ever. That meant every time you, you ate a bite of food, you weren't just eating for one, you were eating for 10,000 in one because you were eating for yourself and you were eating for the parasites that lived in your clothes. No wonder you were only going to live up to 38.5 years. But there was a cloth of kings. There was a cloth so incredibly expensive but so miraculous that it solved this problem. You could launder it over and over and over again, plus it breathed with your skin. It was just incredible stuff. Only kings could afford it. Well, today that cloth of kings is on the backs of poor, the poorest Africans on this planet, people who have literally no cash income a year, $1.15 to $1.60 per year of cash income. And they are wearing cotton shorts, cotton T-shirts, and cotton Nike baseball caps. Caps. Cotton is the cloth of kings. That's how far we've come in elevating the poor and the oppressed. No other system, not the Stalinist system, not the Islamic system, not the Chinese system, that is the old Chinese system, the new Chinese system, takes its elements from the West. Um, none of those systems have ever pulled off anything like it. And if we, in fact, we've got a whole class of people who were once upon a time poor, and now they're humongous. We call them the middle class. If we are going to do this for the poor of the future, we've got to keep our eye on the prize. We've got to look ahead, dream. We've got to suck from the impossibility, 
fantasy. We've got to suck visions of paradise from the realm of the impossible, and then we have to pursue those paradises for all they're worth. And in some aspects, we'll fail in our paradises. But guess what? In other aspects, we'll succeed beyond our wildest dreams, because that's what a simple cell phone is. Succeeding beyond the wildest dreams of 1850, succeeding beyond the wildest dreams of 1980. (laughs) This is very true. Absolutely. But of course, you know, there's, there's also the, you know, and it's a big conversation going on in our country right now, which is the dark side of capitalism and that there is this mentality in some members of our society who have amassed a lot of capital and aren't really using it, uh, to feed back into the, into the whole, interconnected web of the, the the fantasy game and innovation and education and things that renew the society but are are using it to just kind of you know feed their egos and their pleasure centers uh, on a personal level and um you know h- how do we deal with this this inequality that's getting worse and worse in the middle class is feeling very vulnerable right now um you know what's What's the balance? Well, it's, here? A, it's a huge, it is humo- it's a humongous problem. Um, now, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I am a registered Democrat, so I have a um, a bias in all of this. But here, from my biased point of view, is that we're being misserved by our media for one thing. Um, the Republican Party, over the course of the last fifteen to twenty years, has worked out some brilliant capabilities. You know, we Democrats are supposed to be one of the ones with the IQs. We've been either our, our IQs have been letting us down, or we've been letting down our IQs. <laughs> but the Republicans are the ones who come up with all the clever phrasing. You know, putting a, an argument in three words. For, so, death taxes is a perfect example. Death taxes. I thought those were estate taxes. I thought those were to level the playing field, so we'd all start out. You know, at least to a certain extent, even in life. No, now that they're death taxes, that's it. There's no debate anymore. Um, the the phrase that I have been watching most eagerly recently is job creators. Yes. Now you're no longer just wealthy. Now you're no longer just a fat cat. Now you're no longer just you know. Uh, now you no longer have more money than creases. Now you're a job creator. Oh, how do we know you're a job creator? You're super rich. Oh, oh, so job, super rich people are automatically job creators? Do you know of any media outlet, any mainstream media outlet that has challenged this notion that the super rich, certainly by, simply by having more money, are job creators? No, it's bounced around and quoted all the time. The media is not checking up on people. It's not checking up on us on the left, and it's not checking up on the folks on the right. Look, we have our own misleading ways of putting things. The very idea, for example, that we've run out of resources. The whole question of global warming. The whole question of global warming hasn't been settled. It hasn't been settled any more than than whether Bain Capital killed more jobs than it, than it uh, created or created more jobs than it killed. We're all used to saying, oh, but we know every single scientist accepts global warming. If you watched the, the um, conformity enforcement, the policing that goes on in the scientific community to make sure that all of us in science say that and nothing else but that, it would give you skepticism. It gives me skepticism. I'm inside a conformity enforcing machine. The media 
look, I went looking two weeks ago, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, mitt, I can't keep my mitts and my newts straight. All these guys with one-syllable names that you never, I mean, what, isn't, isn't Kelly, isn't a newt a salamander? I believe for God's so, sake? yes. And a mitt is this thing you catch a baseball with. Okay, so newt claimed that mitt was lying about job creating and Bain Capital. And, and Mitt claimed that Newt in actuality had killed jobs in Bain Capital. Did anybody in the media check to see whether Mitt or Newt was telling the truth? Hmm. Not really. Um, when I went looking for the information, it was nowhere to be found. Three days later, the um, Wall Street Journal finally went on a quest of sorts, and what it found was an old Deutsche Bank report that reported on 73 com companies that Bain Capital had been involved with. Well, guess what? Bain Capital claims to have been involved in 200 companies. 73 is not even uh, a majority. And the report wasn't conclusive in any way whatsoever. It really didn't address Newt's accusation. And uh, uh, there is a seven-part series in the Boston Globe um, about this. Do you think it answers Newt's accusation? Not on your life. If, look, if the press is, there's this old expression in the New Testament, um, ye are the salt of the earth, and if ye have lost your savior, wherefore shall ye be salted? You know, you're the spice on, on the planet, and if you've lost your spiciness, how are we gonna spice anything? <laughs> well, in this case, it applies to journalists and scientists and people in the intellectual elite like you and me, it is you are the truth keepers of the earth. And if you fail to follow the truth, where the hell are we going to get truth from? The journalistic community has been letting down the public with regard to the truth. You and I even have been letting down the public with regard to the truth. Um, and I try my ass off, Kelly, And but how, how do you, I can't even answer a simple question like the question of whether Bain Capital has created or destroyed more jobs. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it seems like we have, uh, access to so much information, but there's very little facts to be found these days. <laughs> um, well, information is, as, as the, um, uh, the intelligence department, uh, discovered on December or on September of, of uh, 2001. Um, you can have tons of information. Mm -hmm. You can be flooded with information. But information isn't information until you reduce it to meaning. Information isn't information until you reduce it to what it means in a big picture. Or until you reduce it to several possible meanings in a big picture so that people like you and me can put our little two cents in and in the process of putting our two cents in help make a decision sometimes we'll get a wrong decision sometimes we won't get a wrong uh, well sometimes we'll get the right decision we won't always get it right but the more people thinking about a matter and the more people thinking out the options presumably the better chances we have of seeing options beyond the options that we think are the only ones and of possibly doing something about a 9-11 in advance. It was called connecting the dots in those days. Having a ton of dots is not what it's all about. Yeah. Connecting them is what it's all about. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I think about the boom, especially in the last two or three years of the Internet, and I'm speaking of Twitter and Facebook and and Tumblr and all these other social networks and how fast 
information is shared now and how there is this rise in this kind of citizen journalist that's come up who is, you know, people who are trying to, who aren't mainstream media, who are taking it upon themselves to bring information forward so that people can find the meaning behind it or at least decide, should we be having more of a discussion about this? And, and I think it's interesting how the void of the media and that it used to have this really important role, uh, the void that's created is being filled naturally by these independent voices that don't have any organization yet and therefore sometimes don't have a lot of credibility. But, you know, the system itself is, is trying to maintain some sort of information truth testing going on. Well, look at what it's done. Uh, this is standard uh, standard issue knowledge, but look what uh, this kind of thing has done in the in Russia, where they had protests on the streets uh, a few weeks ago. Look what it's done uh, doing in Syria right now, where all the organization is taking place uh, via Twitter and Facebook. Look what it did for uh, Egypt. Um, look what it did for Tunisia. But then, now let me put this differently. Let's take a more careful look at what it's done. In these countries, in Egypt, it, um, the existence of Facebook and Twitter allowed um, people behind the scenes who you and I should have no reason to trust whatsoever—the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafis, two very militant Muslim groups—it allowed them to use people like you and me as tools to leap into power. In Tunisia, the same thing has happened. They've used people like you and me who believe in freedom of speech and tolerance and pluralism to take over the reins of power, and now there's a blasphemy case in Tunisia. Well, the word blasphemy may not frighten you, mm. but it, what happens in a blasphemy case is if you're a Christian and you say something about believing in Christ, wham, that is an insult against the prophet. Um, and that can be punished in Pakistan by death. Um, well, the same kind of thing is now happening in Tunisia. But there's a, a media gap in Tunisia, in Egypt, uh, in all of these countries that have undergone the Arab Spring. Once the revolution had toppled the guy on top, we all stopped paying attention. Yeah. We didn't realize that when it comes to Syria right now, today, um, we fail to ask the question. You know, we hear reports every day saying the opposition has just claimed that 27 people were killed today. Right? The opposition has claimed that over 5,000 people have been killed so far. Who the fuck is the opposition? Mm. Who in the world is the opposition? What do they stand for? If they got into government, would it be good or bad? Is Assad better or worse than the opposition? Is the opposition a nightmare waiting to happen? Are, are we responsible if we're going to morally support the opposition? Are we morally irresponsible? By not asking those questions, you bet we are. We're as morally irres as irresponsible as we are when we fail to look to an incredible future for Western civilization and, as a consequence, um, deprive people 20 years down the line of an extra 40 years of life. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting point because it it, it is almost like we we want to fall into the storyline and it's 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 a storyline that I think is very attractive for people in the West that if we see people fighting for democracy or fighting for a voice or fighting for freedom, of course we want to stand behind them because we really believe in this system of democracy, but you know, it's it's so much more complicated than that that if you don't have a 
a container for the democracy that really protects everybody's rights, then, you know, just, yep. just giving people voices isn't necessarily, uh, the thing that's going to bring justice in the long run. And I, and I can see that now in Egypt. I mean, I certainly myself, um, you know, signed up completely for the, those people in the streets and was monitoring it and watching it and retweeting people and concerned about certainly the Brotherhood of Muslim, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and yet thinking, well, maybe possibly there's parts of it that really want to be democratic and you have to let these people sort it out themselves. And, and in some ways we do, but, uh, but it is, it's way more complicated than the kind of Cinderella story that we just want to plug into about these places and that there's only two sides. There's the evil stepmother. <laughs> And there's the Cinderella's wanting to be free. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, uh, and maybe the, um, you know, the kind of the, the, the kind of the strong hand of Twitter or, you know, that it, it can only handle two, I mean, especially in 140 characters, you can usually only handle two sides of a conversation. I, I, I've, I've yet to have a subtle conversation about complicated things on Twitter with anybody. So it, it does add to that, making even the world even more black and white than it really is. Well, that's true. Um, if you, the, the major site for the Egyptian revolution was We Are All Khalid Saeed. And um, it's on Facebook. You can find it. Um, I, I have it way up on my bookmarks bar so that I can look it up periodically. But um, even though it tries to give you all kinds of coverage of the revolution, and right now it's cheering for the revolution in Syria, it doesn't give you any information of substance about what's happening with the Muslim Brotherhood, what's happening with the Salafi movement right now. These people own the parliament in Egypt. Um, in other words, you're right. The, the, what we're able to get um, on Facebook and Twitter are incredibly valuable pointers to things. Um, but they're not for communicating a full story. However, I was able to use them in the last couple of days. Um, I might monitor publications like uh, Ashark al-Wasat in Saudi Arabia, um, like Asia Times uh, out of uh, Southeast Asia, and a whole bunch of other publications like that. And I had done a bunch of research about four years ago that tended to indicate the following. Um, once upon a time, Two nations went to war. It was 1981, and the two nations were Iraq and Iran. Iran had had a revolution in 1979, and it believed that the revolution it had was the beginning of a worldwide Islamic revolution, um, for, which would first manifest itself as the Iranian revolution taking over all of the Islamic world, and that's a very big world, 13,500 miles from one end to the other, uh, goes all the way from Morocco to Indonesia. That's a huge expanse of territory. Mm. So, and they, they believed that first they would take over all the Islamic world, and then they believed that they would take over all the world, which includes North America. But, um, the very first and obvious thing was there was a country right next door, and it was ruled by the very kind of secular dictator that they thought was the epitome of evil. And it was, it also had very close spiritual ties with Iran. So they felt they'd be able to take that one over in a minute, minute and a half. After all, God was on their side. So they went to war, uh, with their next door neighbor and they tried to knock off the secular ruler, 
the secular dictator, and they went at it for seven to eight years. They spent, uh, between the two countries, they spent a trillion dollars. Between the two countries, they lost a million lives. And at the end, it was a standoff. It was a, uh, it, it all was for naught. Um, the secular ruler was still in place. His name was Saddam Hussein. Well, the Iranians are known in the Islamic world for extraordinary cleverness and for extraordinary, an extraordinary ability to lie and deceive. Now, you and I should not believe that simply because a bunch of Arabs believe it. It's obviously a racist prejudice, right? But uh, the story seemed to go from there to Iranian intelligence, uh, the head of the Iranian intelligence service, leaking a whole bunch of information to a guy named Ahmad Chalabi who genuinely believed with all his heart and soul that Iranian intelligence was the highest quality intelligence in the world and that he was getting information you just couldn't get anyplace else and it was real, real, real as real could be. And Ahmad Chalabi took the material that he was leaked to the White House, the Pentagon, and to, um, uh, the, and to Congress. Not only that, but the clever people behind this information leaked it to 60 Minutes. Well, um, do you think there's a single soul in the White House, the Pentagon, um, or uh, Congress who is not swayed by what's on 60 Minutes? <laughs> not on your life. And, and what were all these Iranian, Iranian sources telling us? Well, one guy claimed to be one of the people who had built the 400 trucks um, that were equipped with mobile, mobile uh, bioweapons labs. Another guy claimed to have been one of the people who had helped build the 400 hard, hardened plants that built the various pieces of the nuclear weapons um, for Saddam Hussein. And each of these people knew from personal experience and could tell you in detail how Saddam Hussein was building nuclear weapons with which in, in, in a very short amount of time he'd be able to reach you and me. And we bought this, and it was in essence, once upon a time, a long time ago, when cereals that didn't taste that good but were supposed to be very good for you were coming out, there was a television ad. Two, three kids are sitting around a table, and two of them don't want to have to try this awful stuff. So they say about the third kid, who's only about four years old or three and a half years old, let Mikey try it. <laughs> well, what the Iranians were basically doing is, let's let Mikey do it. Um, um, we can't get rid of Saddam Hussein. Mm. Um, let's get the Americans to do it. And guess what, Kelly? Wow. Not only did it work. It worked. We, we bankrupted ourselves. We, you know, we're trillions of dollars in debt thanks to a war in Iraq today. Um, we've made ourselves look humiliatingly ridiculous to the rest of the world. Um, we're in serious trouble at home. And But what has happened between Iraq and Iran? Well, three days ago, Brigadier General um, Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of their overseas Brigades, and they have 110,000 men domestically um, um, dedicated to overseas, taking overseas territories. Mm. And they have five proxy armies. Um, he said unequivocally two days ago, we have won. We now own Iraq. We now own Lebanon. Wow. Now, who let them own Iraq? What were we doing when we walked out of Iraq? We were handing it over to Iraq. Well, the Iraqis knew we were going to have to leave, or the Iranians knew we were going to have to leave. Eventually, it was just a matter of time. Yep. They just had to sit and wait and be patient. Mm. So we're in a situation, a war here we don't even know we're in. 
um, with an enemy whose ways we're not even looking at. Now, what does this have to do with Facebook and Twitter? When I found this, re the report in Ashark al Awasat, the Arab, uh, or the uh, Saudi Arabian newspaper, on what um, Qasem Soleimani, who I've been following for five years now, um, had said, I put it up on my Facebook and Twitter page. Now, look, I've only got a small following. I've got a following of about 4,400 people between my Facebook and Twitter site. But at least that's a start at letting a few people know about something. And I couldn't monitor um, Ashtar Kolawasat and Asia Times and all of these publications the way I do and still write my books and do my research um, if it weren't for Google, if it weren't for Chrome, if it weren't for the Internet. Uh, by the way, these are all things the government has given us thanks to DARPA, the Advanced Research Project Agency, which gave us the Internet. And meanwhile, are my friends on the Republican side of things are telling us we need to get rid of big government. Yeah, yank the plug on your Wi-Fi, buddy. See how far you get. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Well, you know, th this makes me think about uh, a phrase that you, uh, I was speaking with your dear friend Troy Conrad the other day, and we, he was telling me about your. Oh, I adore him. Yes, and he we, he was talking about his conversation with you about the radical moderate, and I'm wondering how all of this connects to that concept of the radical moderate, because I certainly think about it in the United States here, but when you think of it on a global issue, it's even more pertinent. Well, we're making bloody fools of ourselves. Um, you, if, if you were trying, Kelly, if you were trying to make bread, um, you would have to get out some flour, you'd have to get out some yeast, you'd have to get out some water, you'd probably have to get an egg or two, and then what would you do? You'd put them all together, right? And then if I walked into the room and said, Kelly, don't you realize what you've just done? You made this wonderful bread, but it's really all just flour. Why don't you try to make it with just the flour and forget about this yeast, egg, and water stuff already? What would you end up with if you put a pound of flour in the oven at 350 degrees for 25 minutes? <laughs> Nothing. Baked flour. Well, that's it, it's it's the baked flour principle that's at work in the United States right now on the left and on the right. On the left, we are saying, oh, we can accomplish all of this with government. And on the right, they are saying, oh, we can accomplish all of this with just the market private industry. Hey, bozos, I got news for you. You need both the market and government. You need the market and government and something that started the same time the Industrial Revolution did in approximately 1780 called the protest industry. The protest industry, which used industrial tools like the printing press and the steam-driven printing press eventually, was so successful in its first 28 years that within 28 years of starting, it had outlawed slavery in Parliament and England. That's a heavy-duty accomplishment. And then in 1848, when the country went to a war with Mexico that Henry David Thoreau thought was utterly unjust, um, Henry David Thoreau sat down and he wrote a book which, once again, spread around the world thanks to steam engines operating printing machines. It was called On Civil Disobedience. And without On Civil Disobedience, we wouldn't have had Martin Luther King, and we wouldn't have had Mahatma Gandhi, who influenced Martin Luther King. This book had a worldwide influence. That's the protest industry. Now, of course, things were more nuanced than even Henry David Thoreau knew because the war with Mexico, as unjust as it was, gave us New Mexico, Arizona, 
Colorado, Nevada, and California. Now, Kelly, we sent experts out to this huge territory that we just acquired in this unjust war to see what we'd gotten for all of this spilled blood. And the experts came back. I mean, these were real experts. These were guys from the military who had to be able to figure out how the countryside could sustain their men, no matter what kind of countryside they were in. They had to know their resources, right? And they went out there and they said, don't you dare invest a penny into this territory. It is good for absolutely nothing. (laughs) It is a territory filled with nothing but rattlesnakes and scorpions. It is sheer poison. Um, Now, uh, if you were offered an acre of land in downtown San Francisco today, would you throw it away because it's good for nothing but rattlesnakes and scorpions? <laughs> or would you hold on to it because it's possibly worth as much as $100 million? Um, were the guys, was Henry David Thoreau right? Is California more prosperous today than Baja, California, which stayed within Mexico? Um, do you think the people in California, including the illegal immigrants from Mexico, would rather be living in California, the California that's in the United States, or Baja, California, that's still a part of Mexico? Hell, we know. They voted with their feet, all of these illegal immigrants. They're in California, American California, for a reason. So Henry David Thoreau failed to see a, a big picture that was probably impossible to see in his time. But thank God he took a moral stand. And we're always taking moral stands. And bankers on Wall Street owe something to Occupy Wall Streeters. But the Occupy Wall Streeters also owe a big debt to the bankers on Wall Street. And try to pull these things apart. Let only the occupiers run the United States of America. You'll destroy this country and bring us back to 38.5 years of extended of total lifespan. And that's not acceptable. Um, but put them all together, whammo, you've got magic, material miracles, secular miracles. So, so, so the, the center, the, the, the radical centrism idea is screw the extremists on the right. Screw the extremists on the left. Take the best of what they both offer, then go so far beyond it, you make both those extremes look primitive by comparison, and especially dream your ass off. Think of the future you ideally would like to see 25 and 250 years from now, uh, and then go make it. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting what you're saying, that there's that interdependence between the extreme left and the extreme right. And and certainly we've seen different systems of government trying to operate from both of those extremes and how it just, you're, you're right, it just doesn't work. But that it is the the tension between these two extremes and that that creates something that's bigger than the parts, you know, that the whole really is bigger than the parts. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. And it's called synergy. And uh, it's the old uh, try to make a loaf of bread with just flour proposition. Well, try it with just eggs. <laughs> what do you get if you throw those into the oven all on their own for it at 350 degrees for 25 minutes? Baked eggs. That's what you get. I mean, yes, life is a recipe. And life, life to function um, exists on balances, on these creative, ultra-creative balances between things. And those who learn to balance are those who will learn to ride. 
Those who learn to ride are those who will go forward. Those who decide, oh, I've just taken this really great right turn by leaning over to my right on my bicycle and decide that from now on they're going to leave, they're, they're going to ride all the time leaning over on their right. Those guys are spilled on a pavement somewhere and getting nowhere. So, so how, what, what is your vision? Because I, I, I'm also a person who, uh, you know, being a, a student of young, so tension of the opposites is something I, I very much, uh, li- live into and, and also a student of Buddhism. So always ho- holding these opposites to, to make the, the third thing, the apex, the, the unknown that, that is created through the synergy. And yet we, we saw President Obama make an attempt at this in the first few years of being the one who could bring the two sides together in conversation. And yet, because of the matrix of how the right and the left have, I think it all started in the 60s when the counterculture came up in the Vietnam War and there was some sort of major schism between the right and the left. I had John Dean on my show a few months ago and we talked about how, how you know, People like Goldwater wouldn't even be considered a Republican or a conservative right now in, in his own party. That there, it, there's, right. there's such a there's such a, an imbalance, and there's there's absolutely, you know, here Obama, the president, was trying to get a dialogue together and trying to create some synergy, and and even he couldn't make it happen. So so where do you think this radical model? Well, here's first. Go ahead. Well, first, let's look at the big vision thing. First, look at where we're going. Um, you get up in the morning. If you're anything like me, this may not happen to you, so tell me if it doesn't happen to you. I get up in the morning. I go off to the bathroom absolutely first thing. On my way walking to the bathroom or while I'm sitting there doing what I have to do in the bathroom, a great idea comes to me, an absolutely fabulous idea. And it's so fabulous, I know I'm going to remember it until I can get back into the bedroom where I've got a paper and a, a, paper and a pencil. Um, but by the time I've gotten back to the bedroom, the fucking idea is always gone, right? <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Now, right, we're accustomed to dealing with our computers via laptop, via keyboards, and, and if we're lucky, via uh, speech recognition. We can speak into them, right? A new thing. It's happening with Siri. It's been happening with uh, Android for a year or so. Uh, it's been ha- happening with Dragon Software for a long time. Kelly, that's so primitive, it's ridiculous. Those thoughts you and I have on the way to the bathroom, we should be able to store in memory while we're walking to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And then, if they turn out to be useful to us three weeks from now, we've totally forgotten about them, or three, three years from now, and, they've, and we've totally forgotten about them, we should have an intelligent agent up there in wherever, whatever, wherever in cloud land all of our thoughts are kept uh, that goes, you had this idea three years ago, and it's relevant to what you're thinking right now. Um, that's where we're going in one form of space, cyberspace. And until we get there, we're nowhere. Until we get there, we're still in the land of the stone tool. Hmm. Um, then there's another kind of space, and that's the space up above our heads. As I said, there's so much resources, running out of resources. For God's sakes, this is just one pebble on a beach of pebbles. Um, and we haven't reached any of the other pebbles yet. And the idea is to reach above our head. The most immediate thing, the Space Development Steering Committee, Buzz Aldrin, yanked me into starting this group, the Space Development Steering Committee. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth guy on the moon, is a big supporter. There are people from the National Science Foundation, NASA, and the Department of Defense in this group. And what are they all dreaming about? They're dreaming about this. If you decide to put up uh, solar panels out in the Mojave Desert, 
to feed all of the West with electricity, you have a couple of problems. One problem is you've just wiped out the whole ecosystem of the Mojave. Um, you just created an incredible eyesore, and God knows where you're ever going to get the water to wash these solar panels. Um, so, and there's only a certain amount of real estate available on this planet in which you could do all of this kind of destruction. Um, so we need a source of energy that's infinite and spoils nothing. We need a source of energy that doesn't have carbon problems or anything of that sort, but is infinite. Because if we're going to make give us all not just an American living standard, but we're going to give us all, including the people in Africa, the kind of living standard we should have 40 years from now, then we're going to have to be able to use 10,000 times per person as much energy as we're using today. That's energy greediness, isn't it? That's being an energy hog. Not if you harvest solar energy in space. There's another little plan uh, problem with laying solar panels all across the Mojave Desert. There are two weather anomalies that stop your supply of energy. One are called clouds, and the other one's even more insidious, Kelly. More insidious than clouds. Can you imagine what it is? <laughs> it happens It happens every 24 hours, for God's sakes, Wait, this weather weirdness. Could it, could it be nighttime? Yes, it's <laughs> night. You got it. <laughs> the duck is going to come flying down from the ceiling with your $500. Um that's it. Now, now, energy systems, energy grids work on what's called baseload energy. Baseload energy means a steady, reliable, constant supply of energy. Do you notice anything inconstant about clouds and night <laughs> yeah. and similar problems with the, with, with the breezes that come to life, then die again with wind, those huge wind turbines? There is no problem of that sort in space because the energy in space is five times the intensity that it is down here on Earth, and it's 24-7. It's reliably strong every second, every day, every year, every month, hmm. and it's infinite. Hmm. Now, there are two bangs for the price of one, two bangs in the buck um, with putting our energy infrastructure up into space instead of just making it down here on Earth. Do you get any extra bang for the buck by covering the Mojave Desert with solar panels? No, in fact, you kill, kill off all kinds of species that are accustomed to living in a desert landscape and you destroy a tourist attraction. Um, do you get any extra bang for the buck by putting a huge infrastructure up in space? You sure as hell do. It's the beginning of your being able to take resources from the moon. It's the beginning of your ability to take resources from asteroids. It's the beginning of your ability to take oxygen and fuel for your rocket ships from those big snowballs in the sky called comets. And one asteroid alone can have $7 trillion worth of raw materials, platinum, germanium, just about everything that you can think of, rare, the kinds of rare earth min minerals that the Chinese are trying to deny to the rest of the planet right now. $7 trillion worth? That's the, that is the entire gross domestic product of the state of Korea for, South Korea for a year. And we're letting this stuff go to waste. And we're busy pissing and moaning that we've run out of resources. Hey, you know, what planet do you live on, you guys? <laughs> Don't you know there's a solar system? <laughs> we're apparently living on the planet of the deadheads. And I say that with no insult to the grateful dead whatsoever. <laughs> of course not. So. So, so yes, so this vision is amazing, Howard. I agree. And it's, it's, it's spectacular. And it's one that is the same leap that we've made the last 150 years in some ways. But, 
But still, how the hell do we get the left and the right to sit down at a table and talk about this shit? Well, we outvote them. Um, I huh. believe that there is a silent majority that, that is constantly lifting its finger, that is the center finger, the fuck you finger, to both <laughs> the left and the right, and is thoroughly disgusted with what they're doing. And we have to give them a voice. Now, mm-hmm. Kelly, uh, last week I was challenged on this so much, I was said, okay, tell us your program for radical centrism. So I wrote up my program for radical centrism. Then three days later, because I was going to do one of my Howard D. Humongous YouTube episodes, mm-hmm. and I get very intense about my research, even more intense than I normally am, because I'm constantly doing research. But I looked for a transcript of the President's State of the Union address, because I had missed it. I'd been too busy working, writing. And, um, I fa- it wasn't easy to find a transcript, but I eventually found one, and I read it, and guess what I discovered? And this was to my shock, I, to my amazement. The whole program for radical centrism was in that speech. You never read about it. Wow. No one ever read about it. It wasn't covered in the PBS uh, in Evening News, which I watch. It wasn't covered on NPR, which I listen to. It wasn't covered in the New York Times, which I read. It wasn't covered in any of the outlets on the left or any of the outlets on the right. In fact, the night after the State of the Union, uh, the night after I read the State of the Union speech, I had dinner with an extremely smart venture capitalist who has brought you many of the technologies that are in your computer and you see without realizing it every time you boot up. This is a smart man, Kelly. This is a well-educated man. And I said, what did you think of the president's speech? Then he started to rattle off everything that he'd heard on CNN and Fox News and all the other standard media outlets about the president's speech. Every single one of those things was dead wrong. None of those things were truths at all. Hmm. The man had not read the speech but because he hadn't read it and didn't know it because the media hadn't read it and didn't know it. And it was saying little common sense things like we give these big tax breaks to corporations that build factories overseas and employ a lot of non-americans why don't we switch things around and give the tax breaks to people who build plants here in the united states that will encourage people to build a few more plants in the united states he said we are now um using more domestic oil um and we have explored new more new domestic oil resources during my administration, than we ever have in the history of the United States. Did you know that? <laughs> I certainly didn't know that. We're told the opposite. Yep. Every time that somebody talks about Obama this or Obama this, Obamacare or whatever they call it, Obama energy. Um, it, it, he said, look, when kids work hard, they should have a right to go to college. And that right is being denied them right now. Mm-hmm. And he made a few points. So what I would like to see is free college education for everybody, not everybody, everybody who's willing to work his ass off or her ass off hard enough to deserve it. Right. Because you can have an IQ of 100, and if you work your ass off, be extremely smart. And you can have an IQ of 180, and if you laze around, you can be one of the dumbest shits on the planet. <laughs> um, so the... So the resources should go to the people who are willing to work hard enough to take advantage of them. And he was making some steps in that direction to make more money available to people so that, it, it, it you know, the way things are going, only Mitt Romney, with his $328,000 in pocket change from his speeches, <laughs> will ever be able to afford um, to send his kids to college. Right. Certainly not you and me. It was a whole bunch of these common sense platforms. He said, let us have the fastest Wi-Fi system in the world. Why should we be 15th beyond South Korea? We should be first. 
he came up with the idea that Republicans are constantly saying is some form of lunacy, high-speed trains. Hey, they have them in Europe, and they work. They have them in China, and they work. Who needs them more than the Chinese do? We do, because we have a great big country with a small, a few pockets of mega population, and getting down to Washington should not take more than an hour. Um, and if going back and forth between New York, Boston, and Washington could take only an hour, or you could go from Washington to Florida in an hour, uh, that would change things tremendously. Do we really think that we have the most modern technology in the world when we have to sit in an airport for three hours going through, through all kinds of screening systems, sitting there hunched over our luggage, uh, trying to find an electrical outlet for our uh, laptop, uh, and then being told that the our flight has been delayed and being told an hour later that our flight has been canceled and then having to sit around until 2 in the morning? Yeah. Is that a modern transportation system? Give us trains, for God's sakes, that get from one place to another fast, for God's sakes. <laughs> Haven't we learned that good transportation is an infrastructure that makes it possible for a Mitt Romney to put his money into a Staples and grow Staples from two stores to 200 stores? Doesn't Mitt know that a good part of his income comes from infrastructure and that that infrastructure is provided by government? No, Mitt is one of the brightest men in the world. How do we know? He produces a 78% return in a single year for the investors in Bain Capital. That's impossible. Producing a 7% return has been extraordinarily difficult. Bain is some, or, or, or Mitt is some sort of a genius. But he's a, is he had a genius at looking right what, at what's right under his nose as if he's never seen it before and then proceeding from there? Is he a genius at the insights that would lead to good, good government? Apparently not, because he doesn't know the importance of a roadway. He doesn't know the importance of a DARPA in providing us with an Internet. He doesn't know the importance of a school system to provide us with educated workers and even educated entrepreneurs. Yeah, you, As you can tell, I, I'm a thoroughgoing Republican. I would love to see Mitt and Nuke running this country. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Lord, we'd be in, we'd be in trouble. But yeah. I would like to see Barack Obama covered more honestly by the press. Yeah, and it's interesting too, you know, and I've heard you use this phrase before about, you know, seeing the things that are right beneath our nose. And there is something about that common sense that, um, you know, we forget to use that because we are so bought into the media's version of reality and the media's version of what's wrong with this country and them buying into the two camps, you know, PR, uh, messages that come out of them that, you know, it, it drives me crazy that the average citizen in this country isn't, like you said, you know, is this silent majority, but is not standing up for what is common sense and, and, and buys into the, to the big kind of entertainment show of the right versus the left. And we get kind of lost into this big, you know, death match, watching the death match on TV and the horse race. And, and we're not just really looking about what just is right beneath our noses and is the solution. Well, okay. There's, uh, when I was 10 years old, I was hit with a religious experience. Um, that religious experience was being, reading the first two rules of science. And science has been my religion ever since. Rule number one is the truth at any price, including the price of your not life. 
Rule number two is look at things that run under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. Look at things that you and everybody around you take for granted, and then proceed from there. In those dim and distant days, a long, long time ago, when I was 10 years old, um, there was a bunch of psychological research that hadn't yet been done. And that psychological research indicated that we don't see what's under our nose. None of us do. We see what we're told we're seeing. And uh, you know the famous experiment of the film that's made with a uh, woman either in white, looking extraordinarily good, walking across the forefront of the screen, or a woman in a gorilla suit walking across the front of the screen during a basketball game. And if you ask the people in the room to count the number of times the basketball hits the floor, they never see the woman in white. They never see the woman in the gorilla suit. They're totally susceptible to seeing what they are told to see. And that makes the media all the more important because it tells us what we're seeing. And that means we need a serious program to wake up the media to its obligations because those first two rules of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, those are also the first two rules of journalism, and journalists don't realize it. Yeah, and and it seems like part of I, – I feel like part of my job is to teach people and to remind people that – you know, when you look at things, when you can, when you can sit in a place of wonder and really look at, like, just right now out here in California, because we've had no winter, my jasmine is blooming, uh, today. And, and, you know, I walk wow. by, yeah, and I walk by it all the time. And yet when I take the time, the real time in my life and look at the jasmine every morning, it's, it's a miracle before my eyes. Here is spring again. This thing looked dead, you know, a month ago, and now it's it's blooming flowers. And and I right. I, I feel that it's so important for some of us to remind everyone else around us stop and pay attention and and use your own natural organic intelligence to see what is really before your eyes. And to use that intelligence to to, to move forward in your life in personally and as a citizen in this country. And science lives off of that. And there's another field that that does this for us, that radically reperceives things on our behalf. It's called comedy. It's the territory that you and Troy come out of. It's the comedy that your dad, it's the stuff your dad did absolutely brilliantly. What was his gift? His gift was to look at things that run under all of our noses and suddenly bring them to our attention. And once he did, they looked totally surrealistic yes. to us. Yes. But the, but the big trick is not to forget the insights of comedy, not to let those things then lapse into the background again and become invisible. Yes. But to bring those things to the fore and look at them carefully. A- a- absolutely. And I, I recommend that every I recommend that everybody just once a week at least step aside from their normal media outlets and look for media outlets. Well, I recommend El Shark al-Wasad um, in Saudi Arabia. I recommend it highly. I recommend Asia Times. I recommend it very highly. I recommend Pravda very highly because all of those will give you the weirdest perceptions you've ever imagined and will set you thinking. For example, Pravda, in an article three days ago, said that Barack Obama was trying to effect regime change in Syria so that he could first take over Syria, and then he could take over Russia. Now, (laughs) how many people listening to you and me right now have a clue that in Russia, 
and there is at least one newspaper saying that Barack Obama's primary goal in life, and yours and mine, is to conquer Russia. <laughs> well. And as long as they believe it, they're, they're dangerous. The people who believe that are dangerous. Yep. I talked to a friend in Russia the other day, and he said, oh, you've got to stop paying attention to Pravda. It's just a cheap rag. And I said to him, um, but it seems to be a cheap rag that says exactly what Putin tells it to say. Yes. And he said, oh, yes, that's true. That's true. Okay, this is what Putin believes, or at least it wants you to, wants a Russian to believe that we're still involved in the Cold War and America is ready to invade at any second. Well, a country that's in that kind of a mood could push a button someday that obliterates you and me. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is very true. This is very true. Well, Howard, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we will do this soon again because, uh, oh, it's endless, endless what we could talk about. <laughs> and it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. It's it's filled with oomph. <laughs> yes, my favorite word. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Howard. You have a beautiful, beautiful weekend, and stay warm, and uh, maybe I'll see you in a few months in New York. Okay, terrific, Kelly. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. So, Mr. Howard Bloom, the genius of the beast, pick it up, read it. He's got a new book coming out, something about God. I can't wait to hear about all that. Uh, one of the things I love in Genius of the Beast is he talks about this thing called the secular genesis machine. For you atheists out there, it's very cool because it, uh, he kind of tries to harness and, 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 and describe what it is this thing of life that moves forward no matter what. We talked a little bit about it in the earlier part of the interview today. Uh, so I just love that the secular genesis machine. He's so fucking smart. Uh, so that was Howard. Love Howard. Love, 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 love. I literally could talk with him for nine hours. At one time I recorded an interview with him. It was supposed to be 40 minutes. It went almost two hours. <laughs> so everyone, um, uh, what do I need to say? Oh, well, here's some things to think about. Uh, come to my website. Come to my website and support this podcast and the work we do here. You can come to my website, which is kellycarlin.com slash waking. And on the right, you'll see a little button for PayPal. Push that button and then you write in an amount, however much money you want to donate to this podcast to keep it going, to supporting its technical aspects to support the people here, to support my time, to support independent voices in a sea of bullshit media. We would fully appreciate it. I swear I don't I won't buy anything Prada. I really don't like Prada. No, I'm just kidding. I I don't. No, I really don't. I you should see me. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I had a conversation with Eddie Izzard the other day and he talked about transvestitism being on a continuum. And it made me feel so much better because I realized that I am just a woman who likes to wear men's clothing. He says, you know, women get to wear men's clothing all day long, but when the minute the man wants to wear women's clothing, freak. And so therefore I'm just as much a freak as Eddie is. I love that. Uh, what else? You can find me on Twitter, of course, Kelly underscore Carlin. Uh, find me on the Facebook. Uh, Waking from the American Dream also has its own page. Uh, just to let you know, uh, last week at San Francisco Sketchfest, had a blast, did my show. It went really, really great. Hung out with lots of cool people um, and uh, laughed a lot at them which was the whole point. They wanted me to laugh at them. I wasn't just laughing at them. Uh, what else? Oh, 
I guess I could mention it. Okay, I'll mention it. I'm probably going to get into trouble. But rumor has it that Sunday, February 12th, on Raw Dog Comedy Channel 99, there's going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, The Kelly Carlin Show. Hmm. I wonder who I sit down with for a whole hour and talk to. You'll have to find out, all you serious XM users. And if you're not a serious XM user, you will be soon. <laughs> I want to thank Logan for coming by today and uh, pushing all the right buttons. And even though, and the streaming thing was not our fault. We were told someone else was using the stream at the beginning of the show accidentally. So sorry for the live uh, screw up on the stream. But of course, if you're downloading, you don't give a shit about the stream issues, do you? No, of course not. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, especially uh, Will at Smodcast who uh, helped us get the right password and get things up and made us feel less panicked about it all. But we don't panic because it's not like it's nuclear warfare or anything like that. I mean, it's not like that kind of panic. That's real panic. That's like shit in your pants panic, you know. It's as just this is a podcast, a live stream. I don't get upset about these things anymore. <clears throat> I want to thank Kevin Smith for, of course, creating the fabulous Smodcast Network and um, filling the first five minutes of my show with jizz jokes. <laughs> Kevin, you're awesome. Uh, next week, I have uh, Sarah Benincasa. I think that's how you say her name. She's a comedian. Uh, she wrote a book about her agoraphobia and panic attacks, which I am someone who's had agoraphobia and panic attacks. So we're going to talk a lot about that. She will not be in the studio, but we'll be talking via some technical thing. And uh, I'll play some more music. Who, know, who knows what else? Will, who else will show up next week? Um, so I look forward to that. And oh, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, I'm going with the Giants because my dad was a New Yorker, and uh, I've got to root for the Giants. I have no real interest in the Patriots. I mean, Tom Brady's a wonderful man, and he can throw the ball and all of that. But I'm going to go with the underdog in this one. So I'm going with the Giants, but really it's about eating lots of crap that day. It's really what it's about, you know, uh, always. It's who really cares. And of course, winning your little square in the little pool thing, you know. I hope I get like zero zero or three zero or seven zero. Those are always the good squares. Uh, <laughs> uh, so now we are going to go out with an Emily White song because, damn it, I owe her a song. And I think we're going to go with uh, – Row it home because God damn it, that's what we're doing right now. We're rowing it home. You woke up in the middle of the sea, five leagues down and sharks underneath. You thought you might get away with pinning that one on me. your anchor and now you gotta get home yourself gotta roll it home you gotta roll it home you gotta roll roll you roll you roll it home somehow i Till it breaks, I take it far too far And that's all it takes But I never said I was the kind of girl Who plays it safe 
slipped in my anchor And now I gotta get home myself I gotta roll it home I gotta roll it home I gotta roll I'm a world at war, we glorify crime They never mention the choice we made And they act like we were blind We brought the boat out And we raised the sail Yeah, we lifted our anchor And now we gotta get home ourselves Gotta row it home Gotta row it home Row it home.